Throughout the Gospels, Jesus engages with a wide range of people, transforming their lives through his public uh, teachings and healings and so on. But as we've seen over the last few weeks, his conversations, particularly with those who were part of the religious establishment, were often very hard hitting. Not once, not one to mince his words. All too often, I for one have found what he has to say extremely challenging. And today's conversation is certainly that. It comes as a result of a woman caught in adultery being dragged in front of him. It talks of Jesus drawing something on the ground that stands in stark contrast to the lines that others are drawing. And it includes one of his most famous statements, a statement so well known that even those who rarely if ever pick up a Bible or read the Bible and can nonetheless still quote it, most famously perhaps during the impeachment trial of President Clinton, <laughs> remember him. Having avoided arrest during the Feast of the Tabernacles, Jesus slips away to spend the night on the Mount of Olives. Then as dawn breaks, he returns to Jerusalem's temple courts, where crowds of people gather around him. As he sits down to teach them, he's suddenly interrupted by some men pushing their way uh, through the crowds, shoving a woman forward to stand before him. They declare, no doubt very loudly, that she has just been caught in the very act of adultery. Reminding him that the law of Moses commanded them to stone her, they demanded to know what Jesus has to say about it. No doubt thinking that the only options open to him were either to tell them to leave her alone or agree that they should indeed stone her. They and the crowd await with bated breath as he reflects on their cleverly devised trap. Should he respect the law and have her stoned or should he pardon her, let her off the hook and so dishonor and disobey the law of Moses? He can't have it both ways. If he has the woman executed, all of his talk about love and compassion, about the weak and the lowly coming to him, will go out the window. Is come to me all you, are, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will have you stoned, a message that he wants to send out. But if he lets her go, then what kind of teacher is he, picking and choosing what laws to follow? This dilemma, I reckon, is one that's potentially faced by all of us as Christians today. Either we can uphold the law, uphold morality, and potentially trample on people as a result, or we can downplay the idea of sin, be compassionate, and trample on the law instead. How can we show both justice and mercy when the two options often seem to be in contradiction? Let's see how Jesus deals with this dilemma. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered round him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down 
and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up. and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now, and leave your life of sin. I don't know about you, but there are times in reading the Bible when I want to know more. Who was this woman? Where's the man? And most of all, what did Jesus write in the ground? This is apparently the only time in the New Testament that this word for write is used. And it can either mean something like a doodle or to make a list. Some have suggested that he therefore wrote the names of the accusers alongside a list of the Ten Commandments that they had broken. Sam, adultery, Joe, theft, Jacob, coveting, and so on. And more than one writer suggested that he wrote the names of all of their girlfriends in the dust, which does have the advantage of explaining why they cleared the area so quickly. But although it's fun to speculate, we simply don't know the answer. Evidently what he wrote isn't crucial, or we would have been told what it was. But right, he did. And then he stays silent. Exasperated, they keep on questioning him. And eventually he stands up and says to them, if any of you is out sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. At which point he stoops down again and carries on writing in the ground. Shifting the focus from himself and the woman onto the accusers is a masterly move. Neither denying the validity of the law, nor condemning the woman to certain death, he throws the problem back at her accusers. And unable to take the heat, they slip away, one by one, the older ones first. When they're all gone, Jesus straightens up and asks the woman, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And when she replies, No one, sir, he tells her that neither does he condemn her. But then, crucially, he adds, Go now and leave your life of sin. It's a breathtaking story with two primary players, the woman and her accusers. So let's look at each of them in turn and then see what we can learn from all of this. First, the woman. Again, who is she? Is she very young or middle-aged, single, engaged or married? What previous relationships has she gone through? Has she been the topic of scandalous gossip for quite a while or was this the first time? We can speculate all we like, but the bottom line is we don't know. But Jesus knows that she has a name and she has a story of her own. 
She's more than just an unnamed woman caught in adultery. That isn't her sole identity. She's a woman made in the image of God, marred by sin and in need of salvation. She is a woman who Jesus loves and will shortly die for. She's more than just a label. Imagine that someone you love, your sister, your friend, your daughter, was in her place. Imagine that you are in her place. Caught in the act of adultery, an angry mob of religious men storming into your bedroom, dragging you from your bed, taking you to the temple and making you stand before Jesus. Humiliated and ashamed, you look on the ground as the accusers and the shocked crowd look on. Fearful, if not terrified, feeling the loneliest person in the world, you await judgment and wait for the thump of the first stone to hit you. Jesus is the only one who has holy and righteous and sinless amongst them. He is the only one warranted and worthy to judge. And yet he doesn't. He simply says, if any of your accusers is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone. Then after what must have felt like a lifetime, they all drift away. Do you leave with them? Why did this woman stay and not take her chance to escape? Again, we don't know, but unlike other men who simply used her for what they could get out of her, maybe she sensed that this man is different. Maybe she'd never heard a man's voice like his before, filled with tenderness and love and compassion rather than judgment. And then he straightens up, women, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And when she replies, no one, sir, and he tells her, tells you, that neither do I condemn you. She may have deserved to die, but she's free to go. But by adding, go now and leave your life of sin, we can see that Jesus isn't sweeping her adultery under the carpet. To the Jews, adultery was a terrible sin. And Jesus himself had not only affirmed the commandment against it, but extended it. I tell you that anyone who looks at another lustfully has already committed adultery in their heart. Her actions are sinful, as are ours. She is guilty. So this is certainly not a get out of jail free card, but if she's prepared to accept it, by God's grace, she can leave with a clean slate and start a new life. Justice is getting what we deserve. We're worthy of condemnation and punishment and the judge gives it to us. But grace, grace is different. Grace is receiving what we don't deserve. We deserve to be condemned. And yet God lashes, lavishes his love and forgiveness upon us which is why the order of Christ's words is so very important he didn't say go away and sin no more and then I won't condemn you that's what we religious people like to say clean up your act become what we want you to become and then we'll accept you that's conditional love it's not the love of Christ. God's grace is unconditional. His love starts with a welcome and an acceptance. It comes with an invitation and it ends 
with salvation. These religious men can't help her. They can condemn, but they can't save. They can destroy, but they can't restore. They could not set her free from wickedness, give her a new heart and a new life, but Jesus could. His grace can do all of these things and more. There's an old saying that every saint has a past, every sinner a future. All saints can remember the pit they were in before Jesus found them. And by God's grace, all sinners can have a wonderful future if they will but come to him, come to Christ and trust him as their Lord and Savior. Did she trust him? Did she leave it all behind? Start afresh? Again, we don't know. But we do know that we don't need to change in order to be accepted. We change because we have already been accepted. That's grace. So what about these teachers of the law? Again, we don't know them by name, but we do know that they're well educated. And that if anyone has a question about the law of Moses, then these are the guys to approach. We also know that at least some of them were definitely challenged and actually attracted to Jesus. And that one of them, Nicodemus, is credited with becoming a faithful follower. But as the Gospels unfold, we discover that many, if not most, are pretty arrogant, ruthless and calculating and thoroughly hypocritical. And there's nothing new about that. Listen to what Amos had to say about their predecessors. I can't stand your religious meetings. I am fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. These guys certainly didn't live by grace. There were no oceans of justice or rivers of fairness. They lived by law, the laws of the Old Testament and the other 600 or so that they had, they had added to them. Mark Twain famously remarked that having spent considerable time with good people, I can understand why Jesus preferred to be with tax collectors and sinners, which he did. And they, the scribes and the Pharisees, the lawyers, were mystified and they hated him for it. And whilst professing respect for the law of Moses, that respect was clearly partial. It was inconsistent. Where is the man in all of this? Again, we don't know who he is, but it takes two to tango. If a man and a woman commit adultery, both of them are to be judged. If she had been caught in the very act of adultery, then where is the woman's partner in crime? Why is she the only one being dragged out to be brought to judgment? The whole thing's a sham. They weren't really concerned about the adultery. Something else much more sinister was at work here. 
they recognize that Jesus is a threat and they want to nail him. And they hope that this episode is going to do just that. But they're stunned by his response. In chapter one of his gospel, John says that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Okay, Jesus says, let's fulfill Moses's law, but let's do it justly. Before you pick up that stone, take a good look at yourself. Look in the mirror. Make sure you are morally qualified to put this woman to death. If any of you is without sin, then fine. Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. We may not know what he doodled in the dirt, but on hearing these 18 words, they are so convicted that one by one, they begin to drop their stones and disappear. Their sins may not have been as mucky as this woman's, but they were sins nevertheless. And God doesn't categorize sins. Sin is sin and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They wanted to trap him, but they ended up be by being trapped by him, trapped by his moral purity and their base hypocrisy, like so many before them and so many since. They had completely lost sight of what God wants for his people. So what lessons can we learn from all of this? <laughs> a lot is the short answer, but we've only got time for a couple. First, there may be some of you listening to this who relate most strongly to the position of the woman, carrying the stark reality of your own past or maybe current sin of one form or another. Perhaps you too fear the judgment of others. Actually, maybe you just don't believe that forgiveness is possible or available for someone like you. Well, let me tell you the truth. The truth is that there, but for the grace of God, go I and go all the rest of us. However respectable any of us may appear on the outside, the reality is that no one knows the half of it. If people knew us any better than they do, they would be pretty appalled. As someone once said, if our inner thoughts were written on our foreheads, we would never take our hats off. When all is said and done, at the core of this incredible story is what happens when a sinner is placed at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. After everyone else has disappeared, the woman is left alone with Jesus. It's just her and him, her, her sin and him. And it will be the same for you and for every one of us at the end of time. Just us and Jesus. But whatever our past, whatever our sin did to us back then or has done to us since or is continuing to do, what we learn from this passage is that God's grace is a free gift. It's not purchased by merit or by trying to live a good life or by religious affiliation or simply by attending a church. It's purchased by Christ in our place on a cross. He didn't condemn the woman caught in adultery and he won't condemn you or me. As Romans 8 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus unconditionally loved this woman and he wiped the slate clean for her. And he has wiped it clean for you too. We are accepted and forgiven 
He won't punish us. He was punished for us. And understanding that and believing that and holding firm to that, we can lay down our burdens and change. Secondly, secondly, this passage clearly identifies two different voices that speak into all of our lives, the critics and Christ. Critics condemn, criticize, destroy, mock and humiliate, exploit weakness. Christ imparts grace and hope. He confronts failure with love and provides a better way to live. His grace says, I have forgiven you. Now let me also change your life. So whose side are we on? Who do we represent? What is our voice? The voice of the critics or the voice of Christ? Out there in the big wide world, there are sinners just like us crying out for help and for hope. And we cannot afford to be caught up in theological debates whilst their souls perish. Tim Keller recently said that Jesus's teaching consistently attracted the irreligious whilst offending the Bible believing religious people of his day. But in the main, the kind of outsiders that Jesus attracted do not bother coming to our churches. We tend to draw button down moralistic people, the licentious, the broken, the marginal, avoid our churches. That can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners does not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. And we, we cannot afford to be a church like that or like the people described by, by Amos. The most offensive sin described in this story is not the sin of adultery. It is the malice the arrogance, the ignorance of the Pharisees to proclaim the sin of another person whilst ignoring the sin that resides in their own hearts. That cannot be so for us. Acknowledging our sinfulness, but knowing that we have been set free allows us to be effective witnesses for Christ, grace and forgiveness. Allows us to brush away any lines that we may once have written in the ground, allows us to put down our rocks, climb down from our pedestals and stop judging. As Billy Graham said, after President Clinton's affair became public, it is the Holy Spirit's job to convict, God's job to judge and my job to love as is ours. Our job is indeed to love, recognizing that just like the woman in this story, we too are people made in the image of God, marred by sin and in need of salvation. And we have received it. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Thanks be to God. Amen.